we continue to do research into the oral microbiome and our understanding between oral health as kind of a category and overall health has progressed a lot. Our technology sequences everything in the saliva. As a person, you will have some combination of any of those 700 species. Our mouths are like the only other place that you can mechanically remove bacteria from the environment. Most people think that brushing right after a meal is the right thing to do, but you should actually wait like 30 minutes to an hour. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Friends, I am thrilled about today's episode. I have been wanting to look into the workings and implications of the oral microbiome for so, so long. So when the founders of Bristle came to me to discuss collaboration, I was so thrilled, but I also didn't want to get my hopes up because as you guys know, I am all about diving deep into the science, making sure everything is truly valuable. Bristle has lived up to everything and especially interviewing Danny Granick today blew my mind with his knowledge. We get into so many cool topics in today's episode. I mean, if you thought the gut microbiome was important, wait until you hear all of this information about the oral microbiome. I really think this is one of the biggest new frontiers that we will be seeing more and more research on. We get into so many fun topics today, like the differences between the oral and the gut microbiome, how the oral microbiome affects your health, how it relates to health conditions, how you can optimize it for the better, what sort of toothbrushes you should use, the implications of flossing, whether or not you should use fluoride. I cannot recommend enough getting a bristle kit ASAP. You will learn so, so much about yourself. And they were so kind to give me a coupon code for 15% off for you guys. And not only 15% off normal orders, but 15% off subscriptions, which are already discounted. This is unique, by the way. They don't normally do this, but I asked them if they would do it for you guys and they said yes. So thank you so much, Bristle, for that. So to get that incredible discount, just go to melanieavalon.com slash bristle, B-R-I-S-T-L-E, and use the coupon code melanieavalon for 15% off. And yes, that includes subscriptions. Definitely, definitely let me know what you guys think. Share with me in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Find the pinned announcement post about this episode and comment your thoughts there. That will also enter you into a giveaway to win a free product from me. So it's totally win-win. You can also enter to win on my Instagram. Find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win something that I love. And also just to share your thoughts because I would love to hear them. The show notes for today's episode will be at Melanie Avalon.com slash oral microbiome. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. I also did a very extensive blog post on the oral microbiome as well as bristle. That is at melanieavalon.com slash bristle science. B-R-I-S-T-L-E-S-C-I-E-N-C-E. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric 
or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MelanieAvalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text AvalonX to 877-861-8318. That's AvalonX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash food sense guide. And one more thing before we jump in. 
Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Danny Granick. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I'm about to have. Okay, so the backstory on this conversation, there is a topic that we talk about a lot on this show, and that is the microbiome. That said, I think when people hear microbiome, they think the gut microbiome, and historically, that's what all the episodes on this show concerning the microbiome have been about. That said, I have been very intrigued at the implications of the oral microbiome. Maybe we can touch on this later in the episode, especially when I, well, I had been just in general thinking there probably is something there, especially since it took us so long to finally understand the implications of the gut microbiome. And then on top of that, I remember I read a study uh, a few months ago talking about how maybe some of the GI issues that we thought were due to gut microbiome imbalances, particularly SIBO, being caused by the microbiome from the colon migrating up, that actually it might be due to the oral microbiome 
migrating down, which blew my mind. And when I heard that, I was like, there's a lot going on in the oral microbiome and nobody's talking about it. So I've been wanting to do an episode on it. And (laughs) as the way things often happen, the perfect person to do this interview just came to me. There's a new-ish company called Bristle. Friends, this is the coolest thing ever. So they provide a super easy at-home oral microbiome test. Super easy, just requires some saliva, you send it off, and then you get personalized results that show information about your oral microbiome as well as recommendations and a care plan. And they're even setting up a system where you can do a one-on-one call to learn about your results. And I did that and was blown away by the information in that on top of that, and I was just telling the co-founder before we started recording, their blog that they have associated with their website is next level. I know you guys often like my blog, for example, because of how it goes into the science and the detail and has studies. This is like that times 10. They have posts about all of these topics and it is so incredibly nuanced and so enlightening. So this whole process has just been absolutely amazing. I've been looking forward to this for so long. I am here with the CEO and co-founder, Danny Granick. I have so many questions. Danny, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Let's do it. And on top of that, Danny gets all of the awards because (laughs) I put him through the ringer before recording with getting a better mic and he literally drove to have a better setup. So I thank you so much, Danny, for your patience and your time. All of the awards are none of the awards because I also didn't have the microphone for, for the session at the beginning. I'll take, I'll take that one. Well, here we are now. So I'm just so excited about this. So like I said, so, so many questions, but to start things off, I am so curious about you. What led you to co-found this company? Because that is no small feat, co-founding a company, especially one that is so incredibly interactive. Like you're not just creating a product, you're creating an interactive experience and education. And I mean, there's a lot that goes into this. So what led to that? Also, were you always interested in the oral microbiome or when did that interest start? What is your story? Yeah, I I get asked that a lot. I think even my friends are, are still kind of surprised when I'm talking about the company to hear that it's in oral health. I, I never imagined that I would end up here. My background is in biochemistry. And then coming out of college, I was making the decision that a lot of people have, which is, do I go pursue my PhD in something very specific in science, or do I kind of branch off and do something else? That something ended up being a career in genomics on the commercial side, actually. And I worked for a sequencing company called Illumina. So they make the platform technology that other companies use to do genetic sequencing. And it was, it was a really exciting time to join. Genomics had largely been more on the research side. And when I came on, it was this transition into the clinical side. So sequencing was being adopted into companies, into care systems, it was being applied across oncology, non-invasive prenatal testing. And we were seeing this really exciting set of improved health outcomes on the other side, shifting to this more precision-based and preventive standard of care. So, you know, I was blown away. It was, it was awesome to see the application of advanced technology touching all of these different areas of health. And I had always been 
entrepreneurial, kind of looking for the next opportunity where, where I could make an impact. And that was kind of where it stopped for a while. I mean, I think I was so swept up in, in the innovation in the industry that, that I wasn't really focused on starting anything. And it wasn't until a couple of years in when I was living in San Francisco that my now co-founder Brian and I were just watching a pitch competition at UCSF, so University of California, San Francisco. And there were a couple companies that were presenting on the gut microbiome, which we all know has exploded over the last couple of years. And we were sitting in the crowd and, you know, we had worked with almost every company in that space. And Brian, by chance, had a dental appointment the next day. Probably like a lot of people listening right now, Brian is this like cliche patient who is religious about oral hygiene and always would get cavities. Every time he would go to the dentist, they would find a cavity. He'd be back in for a couple of weeks for a filling. So he was you know, lamenting about this impending dental appointment. And I think it was just this really serendipitous context of, of listening to the pitches and talking about Brian's dental appointment that we started really asking ourselves like why we hadn't seen any companies in the space tackling oral health with, with something other than x-rays and observational screenings. And that led us on a journey of research and interviews and cold emails to, to researchers at universities for about a year and a half, just trying to understand how the oral microbiome was connected to oral health and then doing a really deep dive into the standard of care and how we think about oral health and, and whether or not leveraging the oral microbiome could bring the improvements to the standard of care that we wanted to see. Wow. I feel like I could have a whole episode just with, on the entrepreneurial side of this because I am so fascinated by it. For the journey for you through this whole experience, have you changed your oral habits? A hundred percent. So I am... <laughs> Probably another cliche and, and probably like a lot of other people that are listening to the call. When I was five or six, I was diagnosed, I think it was six or seven cavities at the same time and they all needed fillings. You can imagine that that kind of appointment and that kind of procedure for a five or a six year old was a pretty traumatizing experience. So I have hated going to the dentist ever since. Like to me, it just the experience makes my skin crawl, the smells, the sound of the drill, the the fear that, you know, I'm going to go and find out the same stuff that Brian always does, which is I have a cavity and I need a filling. So I had, you know, I, I was diligent about my oral hygiene. I think unlike Brian, I fell into this luckier group, which was I did the basics and, and I was lucky to never have oral disease since that event. But, you know, for me, it was yeah, it was kind of the opposite story. Like, I, I think my oral hygiene was just the bare basics. And, and I was fortunate because I never had toothaches or pains or anything to really drive me to the dentist beyond the typical checkups. Since starting Bristle, like, I think that there's this change in perspective as, as we were researching the company and uncovering the connections between the oral microbiome and oral health and oral and overall health. It all of a sudden became apparent that this aspect of my health that I'd overlooked for so many years and kind of written off as just a set of chores that I had to do was actually a really important component of, of maintaining and improving my health. So since then, you know, obviously using Bristle, I've been able to implement new steps in my hygiene routine. I've switched the products that I'm using and I've been able to track the impact of that on my oral microbiome ever since. 
I do have a really granular question about the cavities. But before that, I guess just stepping back, when you started going through that process that you spoke about with gathering research and cold calling and just, you know, learning about this in the scientific literature, how many studies are there? Like, what did you find when you sat down to research? Yeah, the history of of research around it. And I, I kind of, I tend to separate it almost into two categories of research around oral health and research around the oral microbiome. Obviously there's overlap, but it's a really interesting history. So we can actually go back to, I want to say the mid 1600s. And there was this guy named, and I'm going to totally butcher this, but it's Antony Van Leeuwenhoek. And he was an early, early scientist. He's deemed the father of microbiology. And, and he had changed his career to, to focus on creating lenses and, and eventually, obviously, you know, started creating the early versions of what we know as a microscope. And he would basically go around and he was starting to look at different objects under, under these lenses. And he wrote a foundational paper where he described some of the earliest, if not the first, descriptions of microbes. And it was called concerning, it's translated, but it's called concerning little animals. So he called them animalcules. And, you know, you can imagine this guy is going around his house or his apartment or whatever, and he's looking at all of these different things and seeing all these different organisms kind of moving around. And I believe the first biological sample that he looked at was actually a sample of dental plaque from his mouth. So when you look at those early pictures, there is a drawing of the microbes that he saw having taken dental plaque off of his teeth and, and put it under the, the microscope. So just kind of like a, you know, when we think about microbiology, I think a lot of people probably defer to environmental microbiology and obviously, you know, gut microbiology and all of that kind of stuff. But it, it really is rooted in the oral microbiome, which is kind of an interesting little tidbit. But obviously going off of that, you know, over, well, over the next couple centuries, we continue to do research into the oral microbiome. And some of the earliest expansions on our understanding concerned very specific bacteria and their association to gum disease. So there is something that's taught in a lot of dental schools. It's called the red and orange complex, and it's 12 or 13 species of bacteria that had been identified in very early research as being causally related to the onset and progression of gum disease. Most of the research since that kind of criteria, that kind of category was established has really been limited to those bacteria. So when we look at a lot of the research in oral health and the oral microbiome, it's contextualized to those 12 or 13 bacteria. And that, that was it for a really long time. And the same thing was done with caries where cavities causing bacteria, you know, there were five, maybe six that we'd identified. And all of the research just looked at those bacteria in the context of health and disease. So it was a very kind of like narrow understanding. And for context, since then, we've identified over 700 bacterial species as being part of the oral microbiome. And a lot of that work was done by a research group out of Harvard called the Forsyth Institute and, and the NIH who created the Human Oral Microbiome Database. So they were able to expand the catalog and our understanding of the oral microbiome and its role in oral health. And since then, it's, it's still kind of just remained in this very narrow scope. A lot of the research papers that have been released have not 
gone past that red and orange complex. They've only looked at one or two species of bacteria. But, you know, I think the exciting thing is that our understanding between oral health as kind of a category and overall health has progressed a lot. There's been a history of associations between poor or declining oral health and systemic conditions, some of the major ones, including cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's, diabetes. And for a long time, it was really only shown at the clinical or symptomatic level where we could correlate, you know, somebody with declining oral health would also have some kind of systemic disease associated with it. But we're now able to look at that in this very empirical and objective lens by looking at the comprehensive oral microbiome. And we're starting to uncover more concrete connections between those indications. I just want to say how much I am enjoying this conversation. Okay, some questions about that. This is something I was thinking about when I was reviewing a lot of the literature on like the Bristol blog and also looking at my results. And it would say that it would talk about how these different strains, you know, had shown connections to different oral mouth issues. And like you just spoke about, like they would study, you know, related to dental caries or gum disease or whatever it may be. When they say that like a certain strain had been found to be beneficial for like bad breath or gum inflammation or something like that, out of those 12 or so main strains, have they done tests on all of them for all of the conditions? Or is it more like some of them they've tested for some things and some for others? And the reason I'm asking is it can make it seem like, oh, this is the strain that's good for bad breath. But is it just because that's the strain they tested for bad breath and they didn't actually test all the other strains for bad breath? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. You're hitting on a really good... So there's two pieces there. When we think about the progression in research, there's breadth. So the idea of expanding... When, you know, like to your point, when we have done research in the past and tested for bacteria, we've really only tested for those 12 or 13 and you don't know what you don't know. So if you're only testing for 12 or 13, but there's a hundred different species of bacteria in somebody's mouth, you're, you're missing the complete picture. You're making assumptions based on what your test is saying is there, or isn't there. And you're also limiting your understanding of, of what bacteria causes diseases to what you're testing for. It's a very narrow, kind of shielded, horse blinders way of looking at biology. And then we have the other concept or the other piece, which is depth. And for a long time, including the, the red and orange complex, we'd only looked at microbes at the species level. But advances in sequencing technology allow us to look at the strain level. So multiple strains of bacteria can make up a single species. And not related to oral health, but I think a, a really good example is E. coli. So everybody's really familiar with E. coli as, as a species of bacteria, but the reality is, is that there's, I think, dozens, more than 10 different kinds of strains of E. coli, and only a few of those strains are pathogenic. You know, the ones that, that kind of migrate their way into I won't mention specific companies, but food that you would get from a restaurant that leads to some pretty unwanted side effects. But it's important to understand what strains are present. And that requires higher resolution technologies because you would want to know as a consumer, you know, if you're about to eat a salad and you're only testing for the species of E. coli, it may come up positive, but the strains of E. coli that are in that salad may not be the ones that lead to those symptoms that that nobody wants to deal with they may be unharmful or even pro 
commensal species, so beneficial species. And, and that's been a really big turning point in the oral and gut microbiome and our understanding of the role of those, those microbes in health because we're, we're able to deconvolute the presence of not only a species of bacteria, but specific strains and the, the role that they play. So it's kind of two levels of resolution that we've been able to develop. And then we've also been able to just test for more species at the same time. So now we can look at all of the microbes in a given sample instead of only limiting research to detecting whether or not those 12 or 13 predetermined targets are there or not. So with those 12 or 13 initial ones, did you find that the majority of them were tested for all of the different conditions or was it lacking in that area? You know, I think the 12 or 13 that in the red and orange complex associated with periodontal disease are very much associated with periodontal disease. I don't know if outside of bristle they've been compared against other conditions. I do know that systemically they have been. So to name another example, P. gingivalis is a notorious oral pathogen. It's in the red complex, so the really, really bad section of of that pyramid of bacteria. That species of bacteria is causally related to the onset of periodontal disease. And there have also been research studies looking at that species of bacteria in the context of Alzheimer's manifestation and progression. You know, we have found, we have found that certain species of bacteria do overlap in indications. We see, for example, that a lot of the, the species that cause periodontal disease are also implicated in halitosis or chronic bad breath. But again, you know, when you're only looking at 12 or 13 species for all of your research, you're missing the role of the other 80, 90, 100 species that are present in somebody's mouth. So you may be making assumptions or seeing correlations that aren't actually true signals that, that may appear stronger than they actually are and vice versa. So we're finding new species that are associated with periodontal disease and with caries and with halitosis. And we're also able to develop new insights about new bacteria that may be associated with overall health and disease, including gut dysbiosis. So with bristle, do you test over 700, wait, strains or species, strains? So, yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. We use a method called shotgun metagenomics, and the name isn't important. The idea is, you know, let's, let's actually back up. A lot of people are now familiar with qPCR because of COVID, obviously. And the way that qPCR works is you predetermine targets, genomic targets of, in this case, bacteria that you want to test for. So I could say, okay, I want to test this sample for this these 10 species of bacteria. And what that test will tell me is whether or not they're there. And if they are there, what their relative abundance is within that sample. But there could be 150 species that are actually in the sample, but I won't know because I'm only testing for those 10. And that is going back to that red and orange complex and a lot of the research that's been done to date. Our technology sequences everything in the saliva. We don't, we don't predetermine targets. We don't make assumptions about what's there or not. We, we sequence everything and we get the whole genome information and then we map it to this massive database of potential species. And in some cases, we're actually assembling new species ourselves and, and doing discovery in that sense. Yeah, and that allows us to pick up on anything that's in there. I feel like that's a big deal. <laughs> like, I feel like that's a really big deal. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really important. And I think, you know, the other microbiome industries and other other tests that are on the market, they, they can be really effective in confirming 
the, the presence or absence of species that we already know, but a big part of Bristle is progressing our understanding of the oral microbiome. So we wanted to invest in a technology that would produce as much data as possible, whether or not we know that those species of bacteria at this moment in time are associated with health and disease. We want to be the ones to, to make those associations and make those discoveries and then present them to our users. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Are you guys publishing clinical literature on your findings? We have had an ongoing clinical research collaboration with the University of the Pacific in San Francisco, the dental school there. And they were actually some of the, the earliest supporters of Bristle when, before it was ever a company, when Brian and I were just emailing random researchers. So I, I do want to give them a, a very sincere thank you and a shout out on the podcast. So we've been doing a, a clinical research study, and that was how we kicked off the company. And that study takes patients that go to the dental clinic, and we obtain a saliva sample before their checkup. And then we get the full record of that dental checkup as well as their electronic medical record. So we can look back and, and start to tease out associations between the oral microbiome status of given patient cohorts and not only the dental sy symptoms that they had that day, but also you know, other aspects of their health, including overall health as well as previous oral health conditions. Wow, that is super, super cool. If you are testing for literally everything, because when people get the results, they get like a summary and then with a lot of really helpful information, kind of grouping the bacteria into how it relates to different conditions that people might experience. And but then you also get your raw results. So like I pulled up my my raw results, which actually list the genus and the species and the relative abundance. So 
for that list, because I looked at mine and there's a, around like 60 species listed, does that mean there potentially could have been up to like 700? And what is the range that you see with people? Like, do some people have like one? Yeah. So, so that list, I guess going to the report, you know, having looked at the genomics industry and worked with companies for a while, one thing that we wanted to bring to the product was just when, when people take the test, it's generally, I have a problem and, and I want to understand what's causing it and start improving. And we wanted to make that understanding as easy as possible. So we want to boil down the complex data into very readable, easy to understand scores. But there is this really exciting research and discovery aspect. And I think that a lot of our users want to leverage the data to do their their own digging and, and start to read up on various research papers and, and new discoveries, because obviously we're a small team and we can't even keep up with everything ourselves. So we've had different users kind of email us new research studies, and that's always nice to get. But with regards to the raw results, so there are over 700 species associated with the oral microbiome. That that generally means that, and, and again, that is always expanding, but that generally means that as a person, you will have some combination of any of those 700 species. It doesn't mean that you have all of them. On average, we usually find somewhere between I would say, you know, 60, 75 to 120 different species in somebody's oral microbiome, but there are certainly exceptions to to that standard. We have users that take the test and they only have a handful of microbes. And and that's really been an exciting piece of research internally because having that low of, of a diversity in your oral microbiome in some cases, hasn't manifested in, in any symptoms. And it's been a surprise to the person who took the test. In other cases, it has come from a user who has had chronic oral disease for a really long time. They've gone through the gambit of interventions and nothing has worked. So we, we do have these outliers that, that take the test. And you know, for us, it's an opportunity to start to understand at a community level how the oral microbiome connects to health and disease and also start to work on more effective interventions and care paths for these patients to repopulate and restructure the oral microbiome into a healthy state. Okay, that is so fascinating because it's really analogous to the the gut microbiome in a way because I feel like with the gut microbiome now, the thing everybody talks about is diversity and how that correlates to all of these beneficial health effects. But then, or and, (laughs) I've seen a lot of studies on the gut microbiome in patients with low diversity who actually experience, you know, less symptoms. And it's kind of like you said, like this outlier situation, although I might've made an assumption. So in general, is more diversity in the oral microbiome correlated to better health in general, oral health? Yeah. So that has, yeah, that's, that's one example of a piece of research that hasn't really been looked at because the the technologies that have been used for the most part have been those kind of narrow pieces there. You can't, understand diversity of an environment if you're only looking at, you know, five species of bacteria and that's it. So we've been able to to build a new understanding of the role that diversity plays in oral health. It's, It's ongoing. I think, you know, early signs kind of tell us, like you would expect, that it's a bit of a bell curve where you want to land somewhere in the middle and too high of an oral microbiome diversity is potentially associated with adverse outcomes. Same thing with low diversity. We we actually have a blog article that we, we published with some internal research and data 
for what we've seen with with regards to diversity. I would highly recommend anybody listening, go check it out. Oh, I will put a link to that in the show notes. And by the way, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash oral microbiome. I just want to clarify. So you have seen with some of your results that people with high diversity actually is correlates to issues. That's really interesting. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a combination. I mean, you know, I don't think it's ever going to just be diversity that affects somebody's oral health or overall health status. We have to look at the identity of the microbes that make up that environment. So you could have, you know, having an ultra high diversity of all commensal species of bacteria is probably great, but having an ultra high diversity of a lot of pathogenic species obviously wouldn't be. And, and part of it is understanding what the balance is between those two. So, you know, somebody may have a, a very, very high diversity. And if they have more commensal species or strains as part of their oral microbiome, it may actually help mitigate the risk that the pathogenic strains in their oral microbiome convey. So they could have relatively high abundances in, in a few different varieties of pathogenic bacteria, but there is kind of this community community level effect where the negative effects of those pathogenic bacteria are, I don't want to say canceled out, but combated. Is there overlap between the gut microbiome and the oral microbiome with any of the strains, or do they tend to be two completely separate communities? I mentioned at the beginning, I'd read that study about SIBO potentially being related to oral microbiome migrating downwards. Yeah. So what is the comparison there? Yeah. I I think it always comes back to, you know, for a long time, and we still continue to think like this sometimes, but we have traditionally looked at the body as this very compartmentalized modular organism where our mental health is its own thing and our cardiovascular health is its own kind of self-contained box, uh, metabolic health. And that's not how our bodies work. It's, it's an ecosystem and everything influences something else. So, you know, the, the gut in the oral microbiome is obviously physically connected by our digestive tract, but for a long time there, there weren't known associations between those two. What has, has been uncovered over the last couple of years, I think, through research has been that certain oral bacteria can migrate to the gut and cause dysbiosis or adverse effects there. There are even cases where commensal species of bacteria, so species in our oral microbiomes that are beneficial to our oral health, can migrate to our gut. And when you change the environment, they become pathogenic to that environment. So they can actually end up causing damage. You know, specific strains have been, I'm going to say peach and javalis a lot because it is kind of the most notorious and one of the most well-studied, but F. nucleatum as well has been tied to gut dysbiosis. So IBS, IBD, Crohn's disease, colorectal cancer as well. And I think that we'll continue to uncover the relationship between oral health and gut health and vice versa. We also see that gut dysbiosis can manifest as oral disease in the same way that, that we've seen with diabetes and, and some other chronic diseases. Do you know how many, in general, this is something I should know, how many species in the gut they now think that there are? Ooh, I don't know off the top of my head. I'll look it up and put it in the show notes. I should probably know that. Another question, looking at the gut some more, you know, there's bacteria, but then there's also yeast and parasites and I don't, I always say it wrong, archaea. Is the mouth pretty much just bacteria or are there other organisms as well? No. So there's the full breadth of of organisms that you find in other environments, viruses, fungi, bacteria, typically the main three. 
that's another advantage of our test. So because we use shotgun metagenomics, we, we actually detect and can identify all kinds of microbes. I, I think different from the gut, the, our understanding of the role of those other microbes in oral health and overall health is still early. So we're doing a lot of research there, but we do plan to release that kind of data as part of the raw results so that people can start digging in on their own. Okay, awesome. Do you know, or has there been studies on what determines a person's oral microbiome? So are we born with it? Is it affected by birth? Is it inherited? What, what creates it? Yeah, so the research is still early, but there's, there's a couple factors. I mean, the biggest one is behavior and environment. So the emergence of pathogenic bacteria, the prevalence of oral disease is largely a byproduct of poor oral hygiene, poor dietary choices, things like that. But there have been some studies that have shown, you know, when we're born, there have been studies that show more similarities in a children's oral microbiome with their mothers. There have been studies that have shown actually that the oral microbiome and the placental microbiome are more similar than I think it was the oral microbiome and the gut microbiome or the placental microbiome and the gut microbiome, one of those two. So there is this idea that parents can confer oral microbiome signatures to their children. And then that in combination, you know, I think with, with behavior and hygiene habits, which are also conferred from parents to children. So any parents out there, make sure you're brushing your teeth in front of your kid all the time. You know, I think it, it's kind of, it's similar to our genomics, right? Like you get some some blueprints from your parents, but a lot of what happens later in life and a lot of the things that you may be at risk for materialize based on other factors that, that influence the expression of, of those genes. And the oral microbiome is similar. We also find that oral microbiomes can be influenced by our partners. So a lot of spit being exchanged between romantic individuals. For the record, cavities has been, I think, labeled non-communicable, but I would argue with that. I think that it is a communicable condition. So we do see some similarities in, in couples that, that live together and, and, again, parents and children. And how fast do changes tend to happen? One of the blog posts that you had was fascinating, and it was I think it might have been, was it the effects of flossing? Or one of okay, one of your blog posts talked was talking about the oral microbiome, and it was talking about having different strains and what they affected. And it was saying in some of the studies that maybe in order for these oral probiotics to be taken and have an effect, that you had to first wipe out your microbiome with an antiseptic for it to have a full effect, which was a really fascinating concept to me. So how fast do changes happen in the oral microbiome in the mouth? If you use an antiseptic, do you just wipe out everything? Like, like what's happening there? Yeah. Yeah. No, there, there's, yeah, I have a lot to, there's a lot to unpack. So I think the blog article was on oral probiotics. I would highly recommend people read it. We have a lot of information about probiotics. And I think that there's also a lot of misinformation out there that we touch on, but we are finding that there are, dependencies on how quickly you may be susceptible or can recover from oral microbiome dysbiosis or oral health conditions based on the oral microbiome profile that you have. So we're starting to understand 
loosely these buckets of oral microbiome profiles, and that can help us predict somebody's risk for progressing to oral disease, as well as stratifying the efficacy of different interventions. So, you know, like everything else, the the rate of progression kind of depends on the environment, your behavior, as well as your specific oral microbiome. But, you know, we know that people go from healthy to disease between dental visits like Brian. So it is a pretty rapid progression from a healthy state to a, a dysbiotic one in the majority of people. As far as the use of probiotics, so probiotics, I it's not a great comparison, but I I always talk about vitamins as as kind of an analogy to, to probiotics. You know, if you meet your daily intake of vitamin C every day, taking a vitamin C supplement that's at two thousand percent, you're not you're not retaining twenty one hundred percent of your daily intake of vitamin C and becoming like a superhero, your body's flushing out a lot of the excess vitamin C and our microbiomes and the the use of probiotics work similarly. So the efficacy and the potential that you're a good candidate for a probiotic does depend on the oral microbiome that you have. There are one probiotic is called K12 and it's a, an S salivarius strain. So it's a beneficial strain of bacteria that's in the oral microbiome or was found in the oral microbiome of healthy individuals. There's a bunch of research on it being effective. But if you already have a high abundance of that that species or strain in your oral microbiome, introducing more of it is not going to or reduces the chances of a significant shift in your oral microbiome makeup and therefore your oral health status. So we're finding that the best candidates for certain probiotics are the ones that have the lowest abundance of that species to begin with. And then we kind of reintroduce that species to increase its abundance. The other really cool thing about the mouth, I think, and and talking about antiseptics, you know, one way to, I guess, artificially decrease the abundance of either beneficial microbes that you want to reintroduce or pathogenic bacteria that you want to further eliminate is just by kind of wiping the slate clean. And traditionally, that has been done with antibiotics, antiseptics. They are, they're definitely effective in wiping everything out. Our ability to rebuild the microbiomes in a predictable and intentional way, I think, is still some ways off, which is why you see a lot of patients, I think, especially on the gut microbiome side that have kind of bombarded their their gut microbiome with antibiotics and then have resulted in more severe symptoms than they had to start. And now they're, they're kind of at a dead end and they're going through the full ringer of trying different probiotics and different medications. The cool thing about the mouth, something that like makes me really excited about the potential is it's one of the only parts of our bodies that we can physically manipulate. So like outside of like our skin that you can rub soap on or rub something on or, you know, scrub, Our mouths are like the only other place that you can mechanically use a toothbrush or a tongue scraper or floss to physically remove bacteria from the environment. And that in combination with more controlled use of antiseptics and antibiotics, I think is the best and most effective path to wiping the slate clean and giving yourself the best chance to have a high response to the reintroduction of, of probiotics. And those are the kind of care paths that we're, we're developing for our users. So like in the gut, 
they often talk about how there's basically, maybe there's some overlap, but basically two broad types of probiotics in the microbiome. So the ones that that are there that are like colonized, and then the ones that are transient when we take probiotics and they kind of pass through. When you stop taking the probiotic, they you know go away. So in the mouth, are they all transient or are there some that are kind of in, like similar to in the gut microbiome where they're there and they stay there? Yeah, we're, we're still looking into the transient aspect, but I think a lot of the research and, and the probiotic use today points to the, the end goal being to recolonize a microbiome environment by, you know, eliminating the pathogenic species of bacteria and replacing them with, with probiotic or, or beneficial species. And that's what we're trying to do with the oral microbiome first. Like you said, I, I think there may be some, some efficacy in transient probiotics, but that also ends up, I, I think it's a band-aid and, and it also causes a dependency on taking them all the time. And we also don't completely understand whether or not they're working. Like, I think that one of the problems with probiotics is unless you're really diligent about testing, there's no way to actually know whether or not you're shifting your, you know, insert whatever microbiome you want into the state or the, the makeup that you're trying to go for. And there's a lot of companies on the market that, that are just selling probiotics. And all of these probiotics have the same strains or some combination of the same strains. And there's no way to, one, I, I mean, there are ways. There's gut microbiome tests on the market, but I think only a fraction of people really use them. But it's important to understand where you're starting from and also map and, and kind of track like where you're trying to end up because you can take probiotics for six months. But if you test between, you know, if you do a before and after test and you don't see a shift in your microbiome, you might be feeling better, but it probably isn't because you're taking the probiotics. It, it might be a placebo effect. It might be some other kind of intervention that's been introduced. So, you know, I think the probiotics are available, but in terms of really being able to quantify their efficacy and, and landing and expanding in the microbiome that you're targeting, there's still a ton of research that has to be done. Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee 
even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash Danger Coffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. And major question about this, and I have wondered about this for so long, and it's really important for the conversation we're having right now. So the method of if you are taking those probiotics, because they're often sold as a pill, like a capsule. So if you're doing that, do you take it, it goes down to your GI tract and then they, they work their way back up to your mouth? And or how does that compare to like a lozenge? Because I was looking at some of the studies and they would use lozenges and or like a probiotic toothpaste. So the actual method of how they get to the mouth. The method definitely matters. I don't think that there's been enough research in swallowing probiotics and, and showing a, a true shift in the oral microbiome profile. We have seen stronger studies with lozenges. There's, I think there's maybe a few toothpastes on the market. Mouth rinse is something else that I'm really keen on looking at. Obviously, like not with alcohol and antiseptics and all that stuff, but there's a lot more ways to introduce probiotics to the oral microbiome than there are with the gut microbiome. And that provides almost this like targeted methodology. I think it would be really cool to see one day like a floss and that floss is coated in a very specific probiotic bacteria right and you're introducing it exactly where it needs to go same thing with mouth rinse and in, in your tongue or a tongue scraper and then you can imagine a toothpaste with kinds of probiotic bacteria that mitigate the the growth of s mutans one of the kind of key players in cavities formation there's all of this potential because you can literally like open up your mouth and, and access it. 
Oh my goodness. If you ever want to collaborate on something in the future, (laughs) I would so be down. That's amazing. I would so be down for this. Okay. Some other questions while we're still talking about the oral probiotics. One of the most fascinating findings, sort of recent-ish, on the gut microbiome was a study where they were looking at wiping out the gut microbiome I think it was a colon- for colonoscopy prep, so it wasn't antibiotic wiping out, but it was wiping out, I guess, physically. And they found that the person's gut microbiome returned to their, quote, normal microbiome better if they didn't take probiotics. So it was like a natural process to just let it happen. So in the mouth... Do you think there's a difference in, say, you, quote, wipe the slate clean, like we keep talking about, like the effects of that? Like, will it kind of go back to what it was before compared to if you do integrate some sort of probiotic? Are you changing what it becomes? I know you touched on this a lot already, but I'm I'm just curious if the mouth kind of naturally gravitates to the state it was at before and how factors might affect that. Yeah, so I think, I mean, full disclosure, like I, I would love to see the study. I, so this is all conjecture for the record. My my guess is that, okay, so we, we have used the term wiping the slate clean. And I think that that can mean different things to different people. Just like, you know, if you're living with roommates, like my standard of clean might be different than my roommate's standard of clean, where when I wipe down a counter, I am like, it's bleach and I'm putting elbow grease into it and I'm spending an hour. Whereas somebody else's definition of like wiping the slate clean or cleaning the counter might be taking a a dirty rag with some water on it and, you know, just kind of wiping it down a little bit. So with that gut microbiome study, I mean, I'm interested to look at it because my first response is whatever method that they use to remove the gut microbiome may have been more effective than other methods that have been done in the past where you're truly kind of like wiping out the gut microbiome. The, the, the problem with antibiotics and antiseptics is that they do kill bacteria, but what ends up happening or what can end up happening is that the most resistant and sometimes the most pathogenic strains are still present just in smaller amounts. So they end up growing back. And we see that with oral health and and the use of antibiotics there where a lot of patients are prescribed something like a chlorhexidine mouth rinse to treat oral thrush. And they'll take it for a few weeks, their symptoms subside. And then a few weeks later, it flares back up because you haven't completely wiped out that pathogenic bacteria. So if you're not making other changes, like, of course, it's going to grow back. I would need to look at the study, but that would be my guess where, you know, our, our definition of like wiping the slate clean is it's a spectrum. And, and I think that there is potential if you truly are starting from baseline and rebuilding from there where probiotics and and other interventions might be more effective, or you might naturally be able to rebuild it if there's some behavioral changes alongside it. But I also think that there's a lot of danger where you can wipe the slate clean. And if you don't make any actual changes, like you're giving a chance for those pathogenic bacteria to be reintroduced and grow, or you're not wiping the slate entirely clean. So you're kind of already starting from a bad state. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. I will track down 
those studies and put them in the show notes and also send it to you. I, I briefly just Googled it and one did come up, but I, I don't think this was it because the title of this is Post-Antibiotic Gut Mucosal Microbiome Reconstitution is Impaired by Probiotics and Improved by Fecal Transplant. I don't think the one I read was talking about fecal transplants. So, or it might have been. In any case, I will find out. I will read it later. Yeah. When I read it later, I'll know if it was the one I was thinking of. Another huge question that I have is... Are there oral probiotics or oral strains, are they in our food at all? Like when we eat fermented food, for example, we know we some of those you know appear in the gut. Does that happen with the mouth or is it not related to the food? So there are overlaps. But like, first of all, there's overlaps between the probiotics that you find in, in a lot of fermented foods. Um, I can't remember the names of the specific companies, but you know, there's like that yogurty drink that has probiotics in it. So there's some overlap in, in the species and strains in those products that are beneficial to both the gut and the mouth. Other probiotics may be different. So it really depends on, on what you're eating. Okay. Gotcha. And trying to decide which direction to go, because I do have questions about diet in general, but maybe before that, I mentioned earlier that I had a question about cavities. So before that <laughs> broad question, you've mentioned a lot of mouth issues. So bad breath, cavities, periodontists, how do these all relate? And what I mean by that is, are some of them actual quote diseases? Are some of them just a state created by a bacteria that's not necessarily a disease per se? Like bad breath, is that is that always something wrong? Or is that maybe just, just a side effect that's benign from a health perspective? Yeah, that's a really good question. The, there's no one answer. So I'll, I'll start with this. I think this has been an evolution in medical care, and, and I think it will be coming to dental care and oral health. But the, the way that we have traditionally characterized and classified diseases has been based on the presence and the severity of associated physical symptoms. So, you know, in oncology, like breast cancer was diagnosed as breast cancer because you had cancer in your breast. And it wasn't until we had a really good molecular understanding of what was going on that we were now able to define disease by the mutations that drove the formation of that tumor. And that opened up this whole world of precision diagnostics and, and precision therapeutics that could be applied to specifically treat those targets. So when we think about the diagnosis of a cavity, like a cavity, the, the literal diagnosis of a cavity is like the decay in your tooth. So it is purely the, the presence and severity of that physical symptom, but we need to shift the way that we diagnose conditions to focus on root cause because a cavity can emerge from pathogenic bacteria that produce acid and the acid erodes the enamel around the tooth and eventually makes, or yeah, eventually makes its way to the tooth itself. And then you get an x-ray and you find out you have a cavity. Cavities can also be spurred by mechanical mechanisms. So, you know, grinding your teeth at night and you can physically wear down the enamel on your tooth and, and cause decay. And, you know, if you combine that with highly acidic foods or other kind of factors, then of course you're going to end up with a cavity. Periodontal disease is the, the same thing. It's been diagnosed and characterized based on 
couple different factors, like bleeding on probing is one, pocket depth is another, but it all boils down to, again, physical symptoms when in reality, at least what we find is there's a very big difference between, it's, it's a bit more complex than I'm making it, but there's a difference between periodontal disease that is rooted in an overabundance of P. gingivalis than uh, periodontal disease that's rooted in an overabundance of F. nucleotum. And, you know, it's not one species causes one disease. There's a lot of other things going on there, but, you know, we need to shift the way that we, we diagnose and characterize disease to focus on root cause instead of the, the outcome of that root cause. And I think that that's been a huge miss in oral care because, if we treat all periodontal disease the same, then we're only going to use, we're going to, we're going to use the same interventions, the same procedures to treat it, which is what we've been doing. But the reality is, is that like those procedures are probably like somewhat effective for everybody, but they're not really effective for anybody. And, and that's what we have to shift to is this idea of personalized diagnosis and precision care. And, and that's what we're trying to do at Bristle. I don't know if that answered your question. <laughs> It does. And with periodontal disease, just to actually add a definition to it. So what do people experience when they have periodontal disease? Yeah. So traditionally it's, uh, you know, early periodontal disease, kind of the condition associated with it and, and maybe touching on your halitosis piece, you know, gingivitis is technically an early sign or a symptom of periodontal disease. And then you go through various stages where stage one and two, you know, have varying levels of pocket depth. I think you get up to pocket depth for background is defined as the, the gap, the size of the gap between your tooth and your gum line, and it's measured in millimeters. And I may be off on the specific numbers, but the idea is that like level one and two, so just going up from gingivitis, those are the early stages of periodontal disease, and maybe your pocket depth is like two to four millimeters or something like that. And then you go up to stage three and stage four, and there's obviously more severe conditions associated with it where you know you may have bone loss in, in a pocket depth of, of six millimeters. And that's how we've been diagnosing the various stages of periodontal disease up until now. Is the pocket gap related to receding gums or is that different? Yeah. Yeah. So it has to do with gum inflammation and then gum recession. Okay. So it's kind of the outcome. Yeah. The outcome of, of those mechanisms. And those stages, is it reversible up into a certain point and then not, or how does that work? Yes. Yeah. So for periodontal disease, I, I believe again, up until stage two, it's generally reversible or you can at least stop progression. And then at stage three and stage four, I believe it becomes a permanent and chronic condition. A lot of our users are in stage three and stage four. And that is where you have to go into the periodontist every three months to, again, get, well, I won't get too in depth, but very invasive and very expensive recurring procedures. Oh, wow. So the reason I was thinking about the cavities and was asking that question, this is something that's haunted me for a very long time, which is that I don't remember having a lot of cavities growing up. I'm sure I did, but I, I don't remember it being a big part of my life. And then when I did a low carb diet for quite a while, I had great teeth. Like it was great. Then I switched to, and this was a whole foods based diet. And then I switched to a very high carb, low fat whole foods diet. So I was eating a, and still am eating high protein, ton of fruit, like a ton of fruit and every night in a one meal a day type situation. And when I made that switch, 
So metabolically health-wise, everything was great, stayed the same. Something's probably even improved. But I started getting cavities, like so many cavities. And I grind my teeth really bad. And so I started getting, I mean, it was bad with my my teeth as far as like grinding my teeth away. And so I've been fascinated by the whole concept because I got a lot of cavities. and But it's a situation where I'm like, I don't know if it's because I have a root cause health issue or if it's just because I eat a lot of fruit. And and that's just like what's going to happen with that. So so I guess the question in there is do cavities and maybe you already answered this as well, but do they always indicate a health issue? Like vegans I feel like often have problems with their teeth. Yeah. I would say most of the time it it indicates a health issue. Like it is the downstream effect of some kind of biological root cause, but other times it is purely like a physical issue. Like teeth grinding where the way, you know, you're not going to, you wouldn't take a probiotic if what's actually causing your decay is a physical habit, right? Like the pro, I mean, maybe you get some other health benefits, but like theoretically there's no S mutans that you have to eliminate. That's going to reduce the incidence of cavities if what's actually causing it is you grinding your teeth at night. What would really be effective is a mouth guard. So, you know, there are, and I think that that's where, you know, we need to stop thinking of the way that we diagnose disease today as actually disease. We need to actually think about it as symptoms and, and diagnose disease based on the root cause. So your, your cavities shouldn't just be called cavities as this umbrella condition. It should be, you know, as an example, like bacterially driven cavities or mechanically driven cavities. And there should be a very specific care path that's associated with either one of those outcomes that, that you can implement. I think in your case, you know, it may be a combination of, of the two where maybe the fruits that you're eating are introducing sugar into your mouth and you may have some caries causing bacteria that are lowering the pH, creating a more acidic environment. So that in combination with, with grinding your teeth is kind of worsening the effect. But again, it's it's important to understand like as important as it is to identify the bacteria that, that are causing the cavities, it's equally insightful to find out that you don't have the bacteria that are causing cavities because that points you in the right direction of what's causing it. And it also points you in the right direction of like what changes you should make to address that. Mm. So here's a clarifying question to that. So for example, could one person be eating a ton of fruit, but for whatever reason, they don't get the type of bacteria that would eat the sugars and create the acid and create the cavities. And then another person would eat a lot of fruit and and would experience that. Or is it if you're eating a lot of fruit, you're probably going to encourage that type of bacteria. If the bacteria is there and you're eating a lot of fruit, like if you have two people and they both have the same abundance of the same kind of caries causing bacteria and they're eating the same amount of fruit, then the same I mean, theoretically, the same amount of acid is going to be produced in their mouths. So there are some differences in terms of, you know, maybe one person is more diligent about oral hygiene or they use some kind of supplement that helps offset the, the low pH. So they're lowering their own risk. But at the end of the day, if the bacteria are there, they all function basically the same way. And there may be some genetic differences where, you know, maybe one person has stronger enamel than the other person, which mitigates the, again, the progression and severity of the symptoms associated with that bacteria, but it's still important to get rid of the bacteria themselves. So I guess what I'm wondering is, 
and maybe this is being too black and white, but is it that there are certain strains that would create cavities if they, you know, had the right medium? So like a high fruit diet, for example, and maybe you, if you had just like a little bit of that, but you were not eating a lot of fruit, would they like kind of stay dormant? And then if you eat a lot of fruit, like, can you bring out populations that might've been smaller and then once they get whatever they eat, they get bigger. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's like weeds in a garden. Well, maybe, I don't know. I, I've never really had to deal with weeds in a garden, but the, the idea is like you, you may have a very low abundance of, of pathogenic bacteria related to caries and that population can theoretically be kept in check if you have, you know, a bunch of probiotic species of bacteria in your mouth and you're not introducing a lot of sugar, but if you start eating a lot of sugar, those bacteria produce more acid. The acid will shift the pH in your mouth and a more acidic environment is more preferential to caries causing bacteria. So you would end up actually decreasing the abundance of some of your commensal species, which would give those pathogenic species a chance to expand and replicate. And it's kind of this virtuous cycle of eating sugar, you know, shifting the pH, causing an increase in abundance of caries, causing bacteria that in turn produce more acid that lowers the pH further that results in damage to your tooth. How fast do these bacteria start eating and producing the acid? So like if you have a meal, fruit, or let's even say like a processed sugary meal, while you're eating, are they eating and producing acid? Or if you eat and then immediately, although I know we should probably talk about this, like if you should brush or not right after eating certain foods, can you stop that before it even happens? Is there a time delay? Yeah. So I think it's it's probably a bit of both where I would almost think of it as like a, a graph where what, as you're eating, like some of that is being converted by the bacteria in your mouth. But at least the research that I've seen kind of shows that it doesn't pick up until after your meal. So I was talking to somebody and their, their advice early on in the company was, you know, there was a research study, I'll have to dig it up, but it was basically most people think that brushing right after a meal is the right thing to do, but you should actually wait like 30 minutes to an hour and then brush your teeth because that's the most effective time to, to do it and mitigate the effects of the bacteria metabolizing whatever foods left in your mouth. Is that because of the danger of the pH from the food or is it something else with waiting? I think it's, so while you're eating, there's an influx of saliva in your mouth. And I think that that helps mitigate like the, the speed at which they start metabolizing the food. And then obviously when you're done eating, your salivary production goes down and the food's kind of sticking around and it gives the bacteria a chance to start chomping down on it. And then I think the other piece is, you know, again, like especially uh, Cheez-Its is like a great example. And one of our advisors, Mark Berhana, would you know, he, he is uh, more against Cheez-Its than anybody I've ever met, but for good reasons. So Cheez-Its, you know, it's, it's a carbohydrate-rich food, and it's also really sticky. Or we can think about, like, gummy bears as another good example, where after you're done eating, like, anybody who's eaten Cheez-Its, you, you know that there's still remnants. I don't want to get too graphic here. of Cheez-Its in your mouth. And those Cheez-Its happen to stick to places where a lot of pathogenic bacteria like to reside. So, you know, if you don't brush your teeth and that food's just sitting there, the bacteria are going to continue to eat it and, and probably replicate and grow in abundance. And then if you wait a little bit, you know, as you're eating it, there's food moving through your mouth. I think there's a lot of stuff going on with the saliva, but 
if you wait a little bit, I think you can dislodge a lot of that food, you know, when it's had a chance to settle. And while we're in the diet sphere, I've been so fascinated hearing about the role of nitrates and nitrosamines and nitrites and how the oral microbiome interacts with that. Is that something that you've studied? Yeah. So we're, we're actively looking into that along with a few other things. The, the idea is, and I don't quote me on this. You might know actually, but I, I think I was reading this paper and the paper was saying that the human body doesn't naturally reduce nitrate into nitric oxide. It's, it's a microbial mechanism. But the idea is that you know, nitric oxide is, is associated with lower blood pressure status. And a lot of the bacteria that perform this mechanism of reducing nitrate to nitric oxide are in the oral microbiome, or at least they should be. And there have been studies showing the association, again, between poor oral health status and increased risk for cardiovascular disease. So we've been looking at the connections between the relative abundance of those species and the incidence of, of high and low blood, blood pressure. Yeah, I'm really fascinated and I'm really excited to see the growing information on that because people talk about it a lot and foods for it. And like I mentioned beets, but the connection between how, like you mentioned, it's actually the microbes that make that conversion. And I think it's also what determines if it becomes like uh, nitrosamine, which is actually not beneficial for health versus nitric oxide. So I'll be really curious to see what, what gets developed there with research. When people sign up for Bristle and do the whole program, do you ask about dietary habits anywhere? Are you guys looking at that? Yeah, we do. And we're, we're constantly expanding the questions that we ask. We're making a bunch of updates in the product right now. I, I think, you know, it's been a lot of it is discovery and, and a lot of the research is early around the role of diet in the oral microbiome. It's been obviously a lot. There's been extensive research in the gut microbiome, but for, for oral health, it's kind of been the same stuff for a really long time, which is sugar causes cavities. And that's pretty much like where it stopped. So, you know, the way that our team works is we basically go out and curate a bunch of research for a topic that we're interested in. In this case, we can use diet as an example. We get a bunch of papers together and we start sifting through everything and and maybe we start categorizing it according to dietary interventions where you might have a stack of research that's associated with introducing foods that are really high in nitrate and then you may have another stack of papers that has to do with sugar and carbohydrates and so on and so forth and you know we want to go through and make sure that we're making calculated decisions around what we're pursuing next and, and we also want to make sure that we're not just bombarding our users with like 500 questions, which it would be ideal for us, but like nobody wants to go through that. And then we'll start to pick kind of the most likely candidates and we'll introduce those into, into the surveys that we provide. And that's going to be a constantly evolving piece where if you're on a subscription, you will see like new questions being introduced, you know, when you register your next barcode. And, and that's because we have new research questions that we're starting to investigate. And the same thing is true with your health history, different kind of behaviors and hygiene interventions, the whole, the whole gambit. Have you thought about incentivizing it? Like, you know, having this massive long survey and if people fill it out, they get a code for a discount off their next order. I haven't, but that is a fantastic idea. <laughs> Cause then people will be reordering and you'll be getting information. Yeah. So you will probably see that in a few weeks. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> I'm excited. While we're talking about the studies that you guys have done with the user data that you got, I mentioned earlier just how incredibly impressed I am with the research that you have on your site. And one of the really, really impressive articles was one of the articles that you had on flossing. And it talks about how, surprisingly, the literature to date isn't overwhelmingly supportive of the connection between flossing and benefits to oral health. But then you guys went and actually, you know, looked at your data and you have all of the the results of what you guys found. So, well, just flossing in general, do you think it's beneficial for oral health? And also, what is that experience like? And how do you go about it when you want to test something and you're looking at user data and, you know, what just what is all of that like? Yeah. So first, I would say, like, I think flossing is probably one of the most effective interventions that you can do to improve your oral health. All of our data points to a reduction almost across the board of pathogenic bacteria and actually an increase in in commensals. And, you know, I think the this kind of goes back to the recurring theme in oral health, which is there's a lot of research looking at interventions in oral health status, but there's very little research looking at interventions in oral microbiome status. So I think a lot of the early research with regards to flossing and, and some other things as well is the symptoms may not have shifted as quickly as the researchers thought, or they shifted as quickly as the control or some other thing, but they, they kind of missed the boat on, on the bacterial and oral microbiome piece. And that that's really important for short-term and long-term oral health. So that was really exciting for us. And, and it is kind of this idea that, you know, I hate to use, oh my God, I hate to use the term like contrarian, but I think there is this idea of like challenging the status quo where in a good and a bad way, like we are able to, to really ask some simple questions and provide new insights to our users where it is as simple as, you know, we have a blog that looked at whether electric toothbrushes are more effective than manual ones. And again, it's kind of something I think a lot of people make assumptions about, or they don't really think about other than what their dentist might say, but nobody's really looked at it at the oral microbiome level. And we were able to uncover some really cool insights there. And the same thing goes for flossing. Your your dentist tells you to floss. I, I think most people hate it, but there's never there's very little information that's conveyed to patients about why it's important and like what the real impact is, let alone a way for them to actually see the improvement over time. And that's, that's been really exciting for us. What did you find when you looked at the electric toothbrushes? Did you find they were more beneficial? So that one was actually a little bit more nuanced. We, I can't remember exactly what all of the, the conclusions were, but we did find distinct differences in the efficacy of electric toothbrushes in age groups. I think that we found differences in the efficacy in, inter, uh, in indication. So don't quote me on this, but I, I think we found that it was more effective in reducing halitosis, but we found that it wasn't as effective in reducing some of the species associated with caries or vice versa. So there were a couple of factors that that kind of indicated whether or not an electric toothbrush would be more effective, not generally, but like for you as a person. Whereas flossing, there were some nuanced differences, but it was a lot more kind of like universal. With electric toothbrushes, if I had to guess, I would hypothesize that they would be more beneficial in young kids. Did you look at that? No, we haven't. I mean, I don't know, but because kids are the ones that are not going to be putting in a for effort for brushing. So I feel like they would might benefit more from a little help compared to like an adult who might 
put more effort into their brushing. Yeah. So I'm looking at, I'm looking at the, yeah, no, we definitely want to, I mean, children's oral health is kind of this whole other world that we haven't been able to do as much work as we, we want to in, but we certainly intend to. I'm looking at the blog article and it looks like people under 30 had higher commensal scores when using an electric toothbrush versus those using a manual one. We also looked at brushing frequency with them. So, you know, it's one, if you use an electric toothbrush, that's great, but are you actually brushing like two or three times a day or are you only doing it once? So we found that, let's see, people using either manual and electric toothbrushes had similar commensal scores, but people who brushed twice per day and used an electric toothbrush had significantly better commensal scores than those using a manual one. Oh, wow. And what you have to wonder though, also is causation correlation. Like are the people who are going that intense with their habits, like, are they also doing all of these other oral health habits? Yeah. That's why it's important to look at, you know, that's why data is like the big piece. It's the same reason why we did the shotgun metagenomics approach versus something else, because you can make a lot of assumptions where, yeah, I would imagine that somebody who invests $300 in their Oral-B electric toothbrush is probably a bit more diligent than somebody who's buying like the $1 toothbrush at Rite Aid or somebody who's replacing their toothbrush every three months, like is probably has better habits than somebody who, who doesn't for years. So that's why it's important to not only just look at the surface level, but start to tease out, you know, the, the assumptions that people might start making where somebody who has an electric toothbrush invested more. So we would expect them to brush more times per day because they're better about oral hygiene. So we really want to try to get as close to, to base truth as possible. Hi friends. Okay. So I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, 
it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet. Because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love SoulShine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at SoulShine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. Speaking of the replacing, how often do you recommend replacing your toothbrush? That's something I've had a, a big change in because I used to replace it, I don't even know, maybe once a month. But then I had a moment, and this is not this is not super sustainable for the planet, but I realized, I was like, toothbrushes aren't that expensive. I could be replacing it a lot and feel cleaner, but I don't know if that's just in my head. <laughs> like, I don't know if I actually need to be replacing it as much as I do. Do you have thoughts on replacing toothbrushes? Definitely do it. So there's a whole host of reasons. I would say at a minimum, replace it every three months. We're doing some research there as well. One, I mean, for one, like your toothbrush is just kind of sitting there and... In the bathroom where you're like flushing the toilet. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So for one, like your toothbrush is just kind of sitting out there and it's wet. And like, you can imagine that, like you wouldn't leave your cup with water in it for a day and just keep refilling the same cup without ever washing it. So I don't know why we do that with our toothbrush, but the other piece is, yeah, it's in your bathroom and your bathroom isn't exactly known for being the most sterile place on the planet. There was a study done a while back that had showed they were, this is going to be graphic, but they were looking at flushing and the display version of fecal particles and they i think they found yeah i think they found that if you leave your toilet open your toilet seat open and you flush that fecal particles disperse i I think it was something like six feet you know around your toilet so you can i'll I'll let the audience kind of draw their own implications from that but 
yes, I would replace your toothbrush. I saw something about that forever ago, like years and years ago, and it has stuck with me to this day. And I mean, I'm crazy. Like I mentioned replacing a lot. Like I replace my toothbrush probably every two weeks, <laughs> but I just feel cleaner. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think the more often the better. Yeah. I should probably, that's something else I should create, like a toothbrush that's really sustainable. I, I know there are some sustainable options, but I haven't found one that I super love. So question about the recommendations. And actually, I guess I can look at, so my results, so listeners can get a, an, an idea of what happens when they do the whole process. So I got back my results. And what's super cool is it gives you results and then you get your own score and then you get it how you compare it to healthy people. So beneficial bacteria, I got moderate. I got 5.5 out of 10. So it's so like the ideal healthy people is 10. I got 5.5, which was not super exciting. But then you, you get more information about it. Like it says how it relates and the strains that might be related to that. Out of curiosity, I don't know if you can if this is information that you can give. How many people have done bristle? If you can't say that, that's fine. I'm just wondering like how many people you're comparing to. Yeah, unfortunately I can't. I, I can't, but I can but I can say that the, the data that we're comparing to in those graphs isn't actually consumers. We're, we are launching a feature for that, but we want it to be as again as close to ground truth as possible. So the data that you're looking at is actually from the clinical research study. And it's all de-identified, of course, in an aggregate, but when we talk about healthy patients, those are healthy people, like those were patients that were diagnosed as being healthy in the dental clinic. And, and same thing for, for the gum, inf- gum inflammation score, like those patients who are comparing you to were patients who are diagnosed with periodontal disease. Okay. Yeah. So for gum inflammation, for example, I also got moderate. I got 4.4. So people with gum inflammation, it says are 10 and then healthy people without gum inflammation, it compares to 2.2. Interestingly, well, for halitosis, bad breath, I got low, so that made me happy. For tooth decay, I got undetected. How common is that, that you have undetected bacteria? Yeah, it's, it's um, more common than I thought it would be. The, the bacteria that cause cavities are by nature. If we're looking at the oral microbiome as like a, a pie chart, even people with a high score is still contextually like a very small abundance of caries causing bacteria. They just, the, the effects of those bacteria, I think are just more severe. So we, we do get undetected quite a bit, like more often than I thought we would, which is interesting, but it also kind of suggests that the mechanical piece of, of cavities is more prevalent than we would have thought. And, you know, generally like for, I think my caries score is that like opening up my results, but something like 0.2, because usually there is some, some abundance of caries causing bacteria, but we do get plenty of people that, that get zeros. That's so interesting, especially given, like I mentioned my history, I've had a lot of dental work done because of how much I ground my teeth. And also I've had veneers. So it's really interesting to see that effect. Yeah. So one of the, the other pieces, and we were kind of talking about this earlier, is the way that we diagnose cavities. So you can you can have a lot of cavities, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they were brought on by pathogenic bacteria. And in certain cases, there's something called incipient caries. And it's basically like you had a cavity and they, they were able to stop the progression of that cavity. But sometimes, 
like whether or not that cavity is diagnosed is up to the dentist. So sometimes you'll get very conservative dentists that that are mitigating early risk or they recognize like, hey, this is an incipient cavity and we should do a filling just to make sure that it's all good, even though it's not it's not progressing, it's not getting worse, and you may not even have bacteria that are contributing to it. Whereas other dentists may be a bit more liberal and don't formally diagnose it as a cavity yet until it continues to progress. So sometimes, you know, the the lens that people are looking at your mouth through can influence like your diagnosis. That is something I've wondered. So getting a filling, are there any downsides to that? Is that only helpful? Can it have a negative effect on your mouth? I don't think it'll have, well, there are some downstream correlations that people are looking into with regards to cavity fillings and root canals and things like that. But in terms of treating the decay that is present, right? Like, again, if we, if we ignore kind of the microbial aspect and we just looked at, look at it as a physical symptom that's present, then doing a cavity filling makes sense because you literally have a hole in your tooth and that hole needs to get filled. You know, I think there's other situations that fall into shades of gray where early caries is preventable and it is reversible. And some dentists will instead defer to a cavity filling rather than implementing behavioral change and vice versa. So, you know, there are gray areas for whether or not those procedures are are medically necessary. Yeah, it was interesting when I was really experiencing issues with my mouth. What the dentist that I saw said was that it was probably mechanical because all of my issues were on the bottom of my mouth and like nothing on the top. And she was saying that if it was related to a bacteria issue, then I probably would have seen it all throughout my mouth, not just on my bottom, but probably it was from grinding. So very, very fascinating. Okay. And then I keep mentioning the recommendations. So when you do the bristle program, you get recommendations And first question, so I was given seven recommendations, and I can talk a little bit about them, but before that, how many total recommendations are you pulling from, and how customized is it to the individual? Yeah, so right now, the recommendations are mainly around products. In the next couple of weeks, you'll see that expanded to diet and hygiene recommendations as well, so you'll have even more stuff to sift through. We also right now include alternatives. And I I think this will probably open up another conversation, but you might see like fluoride and nanohydroxyapatite listed. Those ingredients aren't normally both found in the same toothpaste. Usually you can find fluoride-based toothpaste or you can find nanohydroxyapatite-based toothpaste. So we're building in logic as you take your survey that includes like preferences for what kinds of ingredients you may or may not want. And that'll become... There will be more recommendations, but there'll be more targeted recommendations. And we're constantly evolving the logic between the products, diet, and hygiene recommendations that we make in your oral microbiome. Right now, it is connected to your actual results. So there are products that will show based on specific bacteria that are in high abundance or low abundance or present or not present, as well as your high-level scores. So if listeners are curious, you get like the name. So I actually didn't get either of those. I didn't get fluoride or the, I never know how to say it. It's that hydroxy. What is it? That other one? Nano hydroxy appetite. Yeah. It's a mouthful. Uh, I guess that was a good pun. I have to use that more. Well, it's funny because it's like a thing that people are looking for as an ingredient, but it's such a long word that <laughs> I never remember what it is. So like an example I got is, what's one that I can pronounce? Chlorine dioxide. 
And then you click on it and it says what it does and how it works. And it, and then it gives you names of specific brands that it's in. One of them I'd used before, the closest. And then it gives you references. So it's very, very helpful. My listeners, I know, will be really upset with me if I don't ask you the question. You mentioned fluoride. What do you guys think about fluoride? Because I know that can be very polarizing, especially in the more holistic health world. Like thinking about myself two and a half years ago before we started the company, never imagined that I would be having as many conversations about fluoride as I have today. My most objective opinion is we need more evidence. And and that I guess what I'm saying is there is clear research that shows that fluoride is an effective intervention for the prevention of caries. So if we're talking about just cavities and and protecting yourself or mitigating risk for cavities, fluoride has been shown to be effective. There's obviously been a lot of research showing that it is also implied in some neurological conditions. What I think we're really lacking is like a full-scale study a uh, longitudinal study with, with an adequate sample size and very rigid uh, criteria that, that looks at the effect of fluoride long-term. And again, like I don't fall necessarily on either side of the debate and neither does Bristle because again, we are trying to be as evidence-based as possible. And, you know, right now we make the recommendation for two reasons. One, we are constantly looking at the evidence behind it. And as soon as we find the, the right kind of data and the right kind of evidence that truly indicates that it is harmful, of course, we, we would remove it as a recommendation. And we've proactively done that with other ingredients in the past, like chlorhexidine. We also include it because for a lot of people, fluoride is an accessible intervention. You know, right now, I think nanohydroxyapatite tends to be this higher end ingredient that's included in a lot of premium brands. And that's not that's not to say that it's it's not more effective. It's It has been shown to be equally effective in the prevention of caries as fluoride. So that's why we list it as an alternative. But at the same time, you know, not everybody can afford premium brands. And some people really only have access to a Walmart or a CVS or something that, that limits their selection. So we do want to make sure that people are adopting changes that they can actually implement. And, and that's one reason that we include fluoride. Yeah, it's very debated. I think one nuance in a lot of the research is that the the data showing the neurological effects has largely been attributed to the continuous and on the continuous and acute ingestion of fluoride. So, you know, there's what's the saying? Like everything's okay in moderation or something like that. Right now we live in a society where our our water is fluoridated. Our toothpaste is fluoridated. Everything in the, a dental office is fluoridated. Like it's a lot of fluoride that we're intaking, especially if you're drinking water straight out of the tap and you're using a fluoride-based toothpaste and you're, you know, to some degree, like ingesting all of that. There have been studies that have shown that topical fluoride use does not produce the same effect. So, you know, again, just using a fluoride toothpaste to, to brush your teeth and spit it out into the sink may not be as as damaging as as ingesting fluoride continuously for years all that to say like i i think that there's more research that has to be done and we're certainly looking into it as a company but we don't want to close that off as an option for anybody right now until we know more well yeah it's interesting because so i have not used fluoride 
product. I haven't drank fluorinated water and I have not used fluoridated my toothpaste for probably like a decade. And every time I would go into the dentist with these cavities that I started getting after the high fruit diet, every time I would get schooled about how I needed to be using fluoride in my toothpaste. And I do wonder, I wonder a few things. One, I wonder if I had been doing that, if maybe I wouldn't have had all the issues that I had, if it would have been protective. Two, I also wonder, so the effects of fluoride, is it from the fluoride literally touching your teeth or systemically does it have the benefit? So when we're drinking the water, is it just from the fluorinated water touching the teeth or do we get it because we're drinking it and it's in our system and then it also goes back to our teeth from drinking it later? I'm not, I mean, I know that part of it is the introduction of fluoride directly to the the oral environment, which is why we have fluoride in toothpaste. I believe that there is a mechanism for just increasing systemic fluoride and having that reintroduced through your saliva into the oral cavity. But, you know, I think the other piece here that, that a lot of people are missing is fluoride is a, it is a preventive intervention, but I think it's also quite reactive. Like it's, you can, you can eliminate fluoride from everything that you use if you're also changing your behavior and changing your diet, right? You can brush with water, because you're still removing a lot of those pathogenic bacteria and the plaque from your teeth. The fluoride does help remineralize enamel and and protects the tooth from the effects of acid, but decreasing the production of acid by addressing the bacteria that produce it is a totally viable and non-fluoridated path that, that anybody can take as well. Okay. I think that's a very measured answer. I guess just for me personally, I wonder, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should have been doing like just topical fluoride and maybe I, you know, would have had beneficial effects. Yeah, nanohydroxyapatite has been shown to be as effective, so I would you can use either. The problem with that when I was looking it up was I wasn't able to find a brand I liked where I liked the ingredients that had that. But I should do an- another look for it. So, which speaking of, I ran my entire routine by one of your experts, Eman. Is that her name? Eman. 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 Oh, I should know this. I follow her on Instagram and she was fabulous. But something that's so, so cool about Bristol is you have the opportunity to actually have a a call, like an on-the-phone call with an expert who helps go over your results and can give you thoughts on your personal routine. And she even sent me like a recap of recommendations. And I I was really blown away by that personal touch and what I learned from it, especially because I think it's so incredible just in the entirety of health, the advances that we're making and so much data that the everyday user can get regarding their health. So be it blood tests, be it the gut microbiome, now the oral microbiome, but it can also be a little bit of overwhelm with data. And it's also trusting that the consumer has the knowledge base to, you know, form the correct conclusions from all of that. So it can be very overwhelming. And so you guys have done a really, I mean, a really amazing job in making the results that the individual user gets, making it user-friendly, making it very clear, and at the same time, making it very detailed. So basically you can get your results and you can learn as much as you want to learn, or if you just want surface level, like basic recommendations, you can just look at that. But then on top of that, to have that one-on-one interaction was really amazing. So I applaud you for that. And I really, really encourage listeners to try this out because it is so eye-opening. And I know we talked about this before 
how you're changing and enhancing that whole program. But what does the future look like for Bristle? Like, what do you hope to achieve and accomplish and see? And with the user experience, how might it be changing? What are you looking for now? Yeah. So, I mean, I think at the highest level, like we as a company, we think that oral health has been this overlooked but critical component of, of overall health. And, and our goal as a company is to help people improve their oral health to improve their overall health. Our bet is, you know, by, by helping people rebalance their oral microbiome, we'll not only decrease or eliminate the, the prevalence of oral disease, but we'll see a reduction or an impact in the prevalence of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, cognitive decline. So that's kind of the, the big vision for the company. But in terms of what we would want to do on the product side, you know, I think oral health is just such a black box right now. We, we never know what our oral health status is. We only find out that we have disease when it's progressed to the point where we need an expensive or an invasive intervention. And we want Bristle to be a more effective and more accessible standard of care for people, more effective in the sense of detecting disease earlier, being more precise about the way we characterize it, implementing behavioral preventive recommendations across diet, hygiene, and the right products to use for the bacteria that you have and the oral health status that you're at, and accessible in the sense of, you know, one of the, the statistics that really stood out to me is when we were doing initial research around Bristol was 80 million U.S. adults skip dental checkups every year, which isn't, I guess it's not that surprising probably for a lot of people, but the the three most commonly cited reasons were inconvenience, cost, and fear. And what we want to deliver is a more approachable, accessible, easy to use experience. And, and that was a big factor in us going direct to consumer because we didn't want to limit the availability of our technology to people who already saw a dentist or who had access to see a dentist. We want everybody to be able to take whether it's your your zero to one like first step in oral health or you're going from like eight to ten, we want to open the door to everybody. So, you know, in terms of the product, we want to we want to be the the source of truth, I think, for people to understand their oral health status and to implement really effective changes to improve their oral health. And we want to direct them to the best in class products that will have the, the biggest impact. And we right now work with a variety of companies and, and obviously make referrals to brands that aren't bristle. And I, I want to maintain that. I think, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of as, as a company is that we are objective. We, we aren't trying to just sell people products because we make them and it's adding to our revenue. We're trying to point people to products because they're, they're the most effective options that those people can adopt. So you know, we want to continue working with other oral care product companies to get their products into our recommendations, to, to test them and understand the effects that certain ingredients have and work with them to, to create better versions of their products for people. You know, we think that there's probably some opportunities for us to introduce products or at least work with companies to introduce new formulations and new ingredients. And we also want this to be adopted into the standard of care because you know, right now it is a purely reactive process and, and more than anything, like I would love to see dentists and, and hygienists leveraging bristle as part of the practice to really shift 
from pure reactive treatment of disease to proactively managing health, a more consultative standard of care with, with their patients. That is amazing. And that was one of my initial thoughts when I experienced Bristle, which was because I work and I have interacted with and engaged with a lot of not oral microbiome, but brands like this where there's a test and then there, you know, you learn something and then there's product recommendations. And so often it does feel like oftentimes it is very helpful, but it also feels like the purpose is to be a funnel towards a product run by the company. And when I saw Bristle, which I know right now you guys, you don't have any products right now, right? No. So I would anticipate, and I would hope that you guys would hopefully in the future, because then we would, I mean, especially after talking to you now, I just really trust (laughs) where you're coming from with any products that you would create. But like I mentioned, it's very cool that in the recommendations you list out, you know, all of these different brands and it it comes off as just completely unbiased, which is really refreshing. It's kind of like the best of both worlds because I, I didn't realize this, but it is HSA, FSA eligible. So does that mean that we can use our HSA account card to purchase the kits? Yes. How often do you recommend, because it's cheaper the the more you test per year, how often do you recommend people be testing and retesting? Yeah, I mean, I think for most people, like every six months is is kind of the baseline that we've seen. We're starting to do more testing with more frequent tests. But I would say, you know, the majority of people on the six-month testing plan are probably in the right place. I, of course, you can always start with the, the single kit just to get like a snapshot of your oral health status and then determine things from there. The three-month, I think, is is very effective, especially if you're really invested in your health. And, and like we talked about, the oral microbiome is really dynamic. Your oral health does shift, and the recommendations that we make change as your oral microbiome changes. So it's, it's just another way to kind of stay on top of things and make the changes that you need to make to address whatever risk you have at, at any given time. Awesome. Well, we do have a code for listeners. So thank you so much for this. Oh, and I have curiosity is, do you know if my code is good on subscriptions or is it just the one-time purchase for the initial? If it's, we'll make it good for the subscriptions. So let's, (laughs) if it's not, I'll I'll email somebody after the call and and make it so. Thank you. That's amazing. So if you go to melanieavalon.com slash bristle, that's B-R-I-S-T-L-E, that will redirect to their landing page for me on their website. And you can use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 15% off. So I am so, so grateful. Thank you for that. I am, I am really excited. I mean, I've just had such an amazing time doing this. Like I said, it was something I thought was really important and it's thrilling to see a company actually tackling this in such a broad way. I mean, with the research, with the empowerment of consumers to actually learn about their health and then all of the information that you provide. It's just so cool. So important. I cannot recommend it enough. I can't wait to hear from listeners what they experience. So yes, well, we covered so much information. The last question I always ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. What is something that you're grateful for? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I want to say Obviously, the team and the company and our users have all been great. I think that's a a really unique situation for me to be in. Honestly, we, I started the company in San Francisco and San Francisco is an amazing city. I 
I moved back to San Diego where I'm originally from 10 or 11 months ago. And a big component of that was, was the mental health piece. I think, you know, there's been a lot of advantages from a mental health perspective of just being in a, a place that's a bit slower paced, not being kind of surrounded by, you know, the quote unquote scene of, of tech and startups and investors. It's allowed me to, to focus on the mission a lot more and, and connect with our users. And then, you know, I think at maybe on the other end of the spectrum, I grew up surfing and that's always been like my personal outlet. And, and I would say I'm just grateful it's so rare and I don't think about it enough. So I'm glad that you brought the question up, but like it's such a cool opportunity for me. And I I feel so grateful to be able to build a company that I believe in and do it in a place that I enjoy being and still having time in my life to do the things. I mean, the other things that I love, you know, being, having, having access to the, the ocean and like being able to surf it's another thing that like very few people get to experience. And, you know, I think a lot of the time I I take a lot of these things for granted, or you just get so granular in, in the day to day of of running the company and building things. But yeah, I'm really grateful for, for where I live right now. And and the fact that I, I do have time to go do those things. I'm, I'm grateful for my, my girlfriend who's been incredibly supportive and was there from the beginning of the company. Her name's Nicole. I got a puppy a few months ago. Her name's Lola. Um, so that's been kind of the light of my life for for the last couple of months. And she's been great. I'm grateful that she's been an easy puppy because that could have made my life a lot more difficult. Yeah. Well, that is amazing. And not to end on a crazy rabbit hole, but my interview tomorrow is actually, it's with um, Dr. Karen Becker, who wrote a book called The Forever Dog. So it's all about the longevity in dogs and all about their health and how it correlates to human health. I don't think she talks at all about the oral microbiome of, <laughs> of dogs. That might have to be something you <laughs> look into in the future. Yeah, there's some really interesting, there's a lot of research into the oral microbiome of, of dogs and cats, actually, some interesting indications there. Oh, really? Oh, hey, wow. Okay, see, see, there's just so, so much here. Well, thank you. Again, this, this conversation has been amazing. I am so, so grateful for what you're doing. I mean, literally, you're changing the world because, I mean, I don't know anybody else doing this. And I really think this is the beginning of a huge frontier that hopefully will be more and more explored and become more and more accessible, which is something you're doing with Bristol. So thank you so much. We'll have to stay in touch. And I'm really excited to see the future of everything. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.